with the misophonia reaction, there was a little bit of a feeling like I might snap and say something I regret. It's so overwhelming that it's unbearable. What will I do in an unbearable situation? Either crying or snapping at someone were the two main things that I feared. Just in this particular context, the trigger would be sound. Generally, they're good at regulating their emotions. Generally, they're good at paying attention and focusing on things. But when it comes to these specific sounds, it's like all those skills go out the window. And it's almost like the contrast between normal you and misophonia you is so vast that it feels unexplainable and out of control. Most people can't understand with misophonia is that it can get to that point because you can't filter out the sound and it stays there at the same, if not worse, intensity over time. Welcome to Disordered. This is episode 33 of the podcast entitled Sound Sensitivity and Misophonia. Uh, today we have a special guest, Dr. Jane Gregory. Um, it is just me today. I'm Drew Linsalata, a graduate student in clinical mental health counseling, therapist in training here in New York in the US of A. Uh, my esteemed co-host is not here today, Josh Fletcher, but he's here in spirit. And uh, today we're going to talk about sound sensitivity and something called misophonia. And uh, sitting next to me on video, if you ever get to watch this video, is Dr. Jane Gregory. Dr. Jane is coming all the way from, you're in the London area, right? In the UK? What part of Oxford. Oxford. Okay. So Oxford, there you go. UK. But uh, yeah, so Dr. Jane is a misophonia expert. I think her, your content is really so interesting to me because no one else talks about this. I've never seen anybody else talk about this. And she just wrote a book called Sounds Like Misophonia. Yeah, look, I'll put it up on the screen. Or maybe I will. We'll see. Um, <laughs> anyway, welcome, Dr. Jane. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. And Josh, I forgive you for not being here, even though you have asked me many times to talk to you. And I'm so sorry. <laughs> Just to explain, we have been trying to organize this for two years, Drew and Josh separately yes. trying to organize this. And I kept saying, yes, I'd love to. I'll get back to you and then not replying. So I am so excited to finally be here and not be the terrible person that I felt like I was. Oh, hardly. You know, and you were writing a book at the time, which, listen, I get it. There's a lot going on and you're doing research. And uh, yeah, it's funny because when he messaged me yesterday, he's like, oh, I got to skip out on tomorrow <laughs> after all this time. Because we were each trying to have you on our individual podcast and then finally I'm like, no, no, you just come on this one. This is the one you need to be on. So. Um, I like to think that you joined forces and created this podcast just to get me because you were like, it's never going to work. We're never going to get her on both podcasts. So. That was pretty much it. You nailed it. Yeah, we were literally like, oh, she's going to love this. And then we'll wait 32 episodes before we invite her on. So. Yeah. Well, I like efficiency, but I also like things to be sort of run in before I take part. So. Yeah, per yeah, exactly. We wanted to break it in so it doesn't have that new podcast smell anymore. You know, that whole thing. So exactly. um, anyway, let's talk about sound sensitivity. You know, our, our the community that surrounds this podcast are people who are dealing with chronic and disordered states of anxiety. They're, they're working the recovery process, panic disorder, agoraphobia, OCD, health anxiety, all that stuff. Um, and I, the sensitivity to sound is a thing that I'm sure that you understand. Uh, Dr. Jane is a clinical psychologist. She's more than familiar with these things and uh, also well-versed in CBT, clearly. And uh given your email address, this is CBT, which really got me. But uh, so folks in our community often talk about being overwhelmed by by sensory stimulus, right? When they're in an anxious state, sound is one of them. So give us the Reader's Digest version about who you are and where you came from, and let's talk about this. Okay. Well, uh, so I'm a clinical psychologist by background, and yes, CBT is very much my jam. Um, the reason I got into misophonia is basically trying to work out why I wanted to 
murder my husband when he breathed too close to my ear or ate across the table from me. How Mm. dare he? And for my whole life, I had this like feeling of rage and extreme irritation anytime I heard these kinds of sounds like chewing and breathing and even clocks ticking, the sound of pigeons making that weird noise that pigeons make. Yeah. For my whole life, I've been bothered by these sounds. I had no idea why. I had no idea that anyone else felt this way until I discovered the word misophonia that exactly perfectly encapsulated what I'd experienced my whole life. And so I started thinking at that point, like, what can we do to help? Well, selfishly, firstly, what can I do to help myself? I started there started just experimenting a little bit and my main area of work before this was OCD and particularly like long-term OCD for people who still had really severe OCD even though they'd been through lots of courses of treatment and tried different medications that was kind of the main area I worked in and so I started to just borrow some of the strategies that we used from that and tried them out on myself um my children got to eat a lot of Doritos in my ear as I tested these things out. (laughs) My poor husband was the subject of many, many experiments and started to realize that some of the stuff that we use for other conditions, other disorders, other phenomena helped a bit and not completely, like it's definitely not gone. I still occasionally sneak a little glare across the table at my poor husband, but the really intense reaction the like state of sort of feeling really panicked or really angry started to melt away and now it's more like I can't concentrate if I can hear those sounds I can't relax if I can hear those sounds but I don't get this intense reaction anymore and so once I was started working on that for myself I started to think well this is obviously something we should be putting out into the world. And so we started seeing patients at our clinic, um, which is an NHS clinic in the UK, which means that these are people who don't pay for the care as they receive it. It's, it's provided free under public health mm-hmm. and did a, what we call a case series, which is when you sort of take a, a number of people in a row and offer them similar treatment and then evaluate the outcomes and had some really promising results for using these techniques with our patients in that clinic. Yeah. But it's, you know, a really small little project and it doesn't show much that anyone will listen to. So we decided to try and embark on doing research on top of my clinical work as well, which is how I ended up at University of Oxford, which is where yeah. I'm doing my research now. And you spent three years doing that, at least, yes? I mean, I was looking at some yes. of your info. Yeah, it's been so I'm I'm I've just finished three years at Oxford and it was two years before that working on it in the NHS as well. So it's been okay. five, five and a half years now since I yeah. first started I kinda, those little experiments on myself. Yeah, I kinda dig that you were like your own <laughs> like experimental subject. <laughs> I'll be the guinea pig for this. Um, Absolutely. And that's what that's what I do with therapy anyway. Like if I'm expecting anyone that I'm working with to do something, I think I should be willing to do it myself. So I often test stuff out and and see what it feels like to um, be exposed to these sorts of things that are usually inherently unpleasant to be exposed to. So that was already something that was part of my normal self-practice for for CBT. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So you're like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to hack my own brain here. So that's it. We're officially a biohacking podcast now. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. Now the big bucks come in. Now the big bucks come in. That's exactly right. There's plenty of branded merch on the way. So you just I need the word um, bio or neuro and suddenly that's it. Yeah, You're in. Yeah, we need to be somehow a neurohacking AI powered. Boom. We got all the buzzwords right there. You're our people. I can clearly see you are our people. We need to have you on. <laughs> oh, there's a reason why I was attracted to your um, accounts on Instagram because, yeah, I really like the way that you put stuff out in the world. And that was one of the things that I realized when I started this was that there was hardly any information out there. And when it was out there, it wasn't necessarily communicated in a very effective or compassionate yeah. way. And so the first year of working on this, I was also um, doing training in science communication. I was doing comedy classes. I started okay. doing some like what we call nerd comedy, yeah. where I would sort of get up on stage and talk about my experiences with how I got to be doing research in misophonia. And that has helped me to at least feel moderately comfortable talking about it in public. Um, you doing fine so far here. So very good. Um, I'm not, not, not surprised now. You're doing comedy classes and stand up. There you go. And that's a piece of puzzle. That isn't it's a, surprise a little, little side hustle. Yeah, very good. So here's what I find interesting. You were you used the word like panicked or like, you know, kind of uh, describing like, well, when I would be triggered by these sounds, I'd get into a bit of a meltdown mode or a spiral. A lot of people like to say they spiral. So yeah. you would really exist. Would you uh, experience that like level of almost panic level anxiety and arousal when you'd be triggered so by these sounds? I think that spiral is probably of those words that you used for my experience, spiral is probably the best one. It, it could just kind of escalated and I felt trapped in the situation. I felt helpless. I felt like I couldn't get away or that I, I'm really worried about offending people. So that was part of the problem is that I thought that if I left the situation or put earplugs in that I would offend people. Mm. Fortunately, I've gotten a little bit better at not caring if somebody gets offended by me putting in earplugs. Yeah. But I've had panic attacks before and it definitely wasn't the same as a panic attack. It didn't have, for me, it didn't have that same feeling. When I had panic attacks in the past, I was sort of afraid that I would like lose control, lose my mind, yep. um, that I was going crazy or that something disastrous was going to happen. With the misophonia reaction, it, there was a little bit of a feeling like I might snap and say something I regret or when I was a kid I like used to grab food out of my brother's hand if he was eating too loudly so there it was based in experience but okay. um, I think that that was part of it was that the childhood experience of doing that had stuck with me so it felt like that was still possible even though I had a lot more self-control and yeah. a lot better motion regulation skills than I did when I was a kid but that feeling like that could happen Mm. was still there. And I think that's something that is really close to panic is that even when you rationally know that you're safe, it feels like you're in yeah. danger or that you're at risk of doing something harmful. I'm guessing in a way, it's almost like uh, the experience of it's just becoming unbearable. It's so overwhelming that it's un unbearable. What will I do in an unbearable situation? Yeah. And, and for me, I get I cry really easily. And that's just a general trait of mine. That's not specific to misophonia. My sisters, my mom, we're all big criers yeah. and we all get like really rednecks. And um, so one of the things for me is like, it's going to be really visible how upset I am. And again, some past experience, like I remember being really upset and overwhelmed in an exam and getting tearful and getting all red and the invigilators are sort of walking up and down, looking at me, not quite sure what to 
do with me because there was nothing technically yeah. wrong. I mean, there was inside, but right. they couldn't see what was going on. So yeah, that feeling of being overwhelmed and that that would come out in some way. And for me, that would be either crying or snapping at someone were the two main things that I feared. Yeah. Just in this particular context, the trigger would be sound. Yes, exactly. And I didn't experience that kind of fear in any other part of my life. It was really, really specific yeah. to sound. I get it. And a lot of, a lot of people miss, miss when you say the same thing, like that actually generally they're good at regulating their emotions. Generally they're good at paying attention and focusing on things unless they've got some kind of co-occurring um, mm -hmm. ADHD or something like that. But when it comes to these specific sounds, it's like all those skills go out the window. And it's almost like that, um, the contrast between normal you and misophonia you is so vast that it feels unexplainable and out of control. Yeah, but I would think that understandable though. So if you go up to the, you know, the guard at the palace, right? And they're supposed to be stoic, but you just poke that person, poke, 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 yeah. poke, poke, you would drive them to a breaking point too. And it sounds like, why wouldn't you have a hard time regulating in those moments? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really good point that like, if you keep doing something to somebody yeah. that they don't like, they will be driven to some, at some point, some kind of breaking point. Food out of your brother's hands. Totally understandable. I would yeah. think. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I think the thing that most people can't understand with misophonia is that it can get to that point because you can't filter out the sound. So it keeps coming at you like you're hearing it for the first time. So it's like, oh, it's still there. Oh, it's still there. Oh, it's still there. Mm -hmm. Whereas most people, even if they don't like those sounds, and most people find the sound of loud chewing annoying yeah. or disgusting, but people with misophonia can't filter it out. So it just stays there and it stays there at the same, if not worse, intensity over time. And so the reaction builds and builds and builds. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, I, you know, that the part that you just said where it doesn't go away, it's not like the sound's going to go away. I mean, I guess at the end of the meal, presumably you go away, but is it in a similar situation? A person who's in a very highly anxious state, who's trying not to panic feels like a minute and a half is 10 years. I'm guessing yeah. that, you know, the meal will be over and the chewing will stop in seven or eight minutes, but that might as well be a month. Yeah. Like, a packet of chips can last far longer than you think it is see? going to. Like, yeah, you, you can see it's like, how is that bag not empty? And especially in an enclosed environment, like on a plane or a train or something where you can't get away from the sound, yeah. it, that, that time sort of stretches out. But that's also um, one of the reasons why chewing gum is such a problem because you don't know when it's going to finish. Sometimes if you can see how long it's going to last, you can manage it. It's like, oh, well, I know how long I have to cope with this for, and I know I can cope for the time it takes to eat a bag of crisps. But with chewing yeah. gum, it could just keep going forever. That's it. Oh, I would have never thought of that. You're right. You do not know when I'm going to stop chewing that gum. Yeah. And so if someone was having a panic attack and they knew that, that those sensations could just keep going on forever, they're going to stay in that heightened state You know. It's funny because Josh suffers from misophonia. And I think that's one of the reasons he was, he was so interested in your work. And, you know, when I said, yeah, well, we, Dr. Jane is booked in. I said, would it be wrong? And you know us at this point, would it be wrong if I just like crunch chips into the microphone the whole time the three of us are talking? And he said, it wouldn't be wrong, but I would kill you. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you just unbearable. wouldn't get anything out of me. Like if right. I have to listen to that, I can't concentrate. And so okay. when I was, um, when I was a manager in an NHS workplace, I'd have times where people would have to come and like bring really important questions to me. And if they were eating or chewing gum or something, I'd have to say, I'm really sorry, but I cannot concentrate if I can hear the sound of chewing. So yeah. if, if you want to have this conversation and you want 
all of me, all of my attention, we're going to have to do it when you're finished eating or you're going to have to temporarily spit out your chewing gum or something because I just can't focus. And that, even though I've done loads of work on this, that is still true for me, that if I'm, if I'm conscious of the sound, that's it, my attention's gone. But even yeah. though that situation is not your fault, that's not anybody, it's not your fault that you're sensitive to sound. Mm-hmm. Do you still find yourself almost being apologetic when you have to say that? Like, listen, it's not your fault that you're eating lunch right now. You're allowed to eat lunch. Just this is my thing. It's a me, it's a me problem. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I probably tend to be, I'm working on it. I tend to be over apologetic anyway, sure. but for misophonia, a lot of people grew up being told it was their fault it was them there was something wrong with them they're too sensitive they're controlling or manipulative or they're trying to like control the family and so if you've been told that by your family or if you've experienced that as true even if no one said it then of course that's what, what you're going to feel and for me now it's more again I said I'm not really don't really like offending people and it's really hard to tell somebody that they are disgusting without offending them because it's inherently an awful thing to say to yeah, somebody. Yeah, I get that. And, you know, from the other side, it's like, well, I have to eat. I can't not yeah. eat. You know, I'm not doing something disgusting. So I get that. It yeah. must be and, a and terribly isolating experience from a social yes. connection yeah. standpoint. Yeah. And I think that there's sort of there's two parts. One is when someone is just doing something that they have every right to do. And another is when someone is doing something that most people would consider to be bad manners, but you don't know what their situation yeah. is. You don't know what's going on. Like one of my kids literally cannot eat with their mouth closed and it kills me. Like I've worked so hard and tried to be so gentle with like teaching them to eat nicely. And one of them was just like, it, I just can't, it's really uncomfortable. And every time you mention it, it makes me really self-conscious and then I don't enjoy my food. And so we had to agree as a family that it was far more important for people not to be self-conscious around food than it was yeah. to be able to eat with your mouth closed, even though it might cause problems in in the future if yeah. they're around other people with misophonia but i would rather it be a bit uncomfortable for me or we need to put some music on or i take a little break mm. than make my kids feel self-conscious about something that they literally can't control and that helped me to be more sympathetic towards other people who may or may not be able to control it but i like to pretend in my own heart that they can they can't control it and therefore i can forgive them for being so repulsive at the table yeah yeah. i i I, really finding this this is a great i I love that you're sharing thank you so much because i think the this is an example of you know you can't fix it and i noticed you know you were even in some of your writing like i'm not trying to find a cure because i don't think i don't know if there is one or will be one but we are trying to find ways to adapt you know, and be a little less, you know, uh, uh, impacted by it. And that's what you're describing perfectly, which, yeah. you know, I appreciate that. That's, yeah. That's- and I think there are, there are like layers to it. So part of what the book is trying to do is help people to remove some of the layers. Cause in the middle, you've got this, oh, I can't concentrate when I can hear these sounds. Mm-hmm. And most people, if that was the only problem that would, for most people that would be manageable. If it was someone constantly thumping above you in your apartment you know maybe that would be really hard work or if you worked in an environment where there was those sorts of sounds all the time mm-hmm. but most of us can manage if that's the only problem is I can't really concentrate when I can hear these sounds that would be 
manageable for most people but we get these layers attached to it like feeling bad about yourself like worrying what your reaction will be yeah. we also think that there's part of your brain is kind of attached these sounds to some sort of sense of threat or violation or a fear of being overwhelmed which then intensifies the reaction yeah so those are all the layers that we're trying to remove if you're listening does this all sound familiar even if you don't have misophonia this is i mean this is really the analog is so there it's i'm so i'm so interested in what you're saying here because of that it's applicable outside even just this particular presentation right Absolutely. Yeah. And it was the same when I was working with a lot of people with OCD, especially people who have lived with it their whole lives and haven't necessarily gotten better with previous treatment. Mm. There's a lot of shame attached to that. And so that's one of the layers. And it's like, well, we can't do the other work if you're feeling ashamed about this problem. We actually need to help resolve that first so that you have access to change because we, we can't, our brains don't learn and change and grow in a state of shame yeah so we need to resolve some things before other things are possible yeah because otherwise that exposure would be hey as your helper clinician therapist i'm asking you not only to do a scary thing but a shameful thing i'm asking you to go directly into the mouth of the lion every time yeah yeah that's a problem yeah. that makes sense I and i can imagine for somebody with misophonia especially if it's and i hear this common thread eating sounds we attach so much significance to food and communal eating and gathering to eat and going out to eat and eat and eat, that that must be so incredibly impactful from a social standpoint, because you can't, you can, but it'd be very impactful to extract yourself from those social rituals, if you will. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And right. I, I live in, I'm actually Australian by, um, by background by birth. I grew up in Australia. <laughs> live in England now where there is a very heavy tea culture and a lot of people like to just take a sip from their tea as soon as it's poured out of the kettle, which means that they slurp yep. it because it's so hot. It's and again, hot. it's a really important cultural, social bonding experience to have a cup of tea together. And if that sound of someone drinking a cup of tea disconnects you from them it has the opposite function of what yeah. a cup of tea together is meant to have and same with food together and um that sort of shared family experience yeah when you were working on the s5 i'm looking at the paper up next to me it was a big sample eight over 800 individuals in your study cross-cultural what about the cultures where slurping is encouraged it's actually a, a compliment if you will if you yeah, did so not slurp my <laughs> soup, I would be insulted by you. Must be yeah, sad. and that, we're, we're really, really interested to, to find that out. So that sample was um, a UK sample, and our previous one had been people with misophonia, for, and it was mostly, it was an English-speaking sample, mm -hmm. but we've since sampled it in a man Mandarin-speaking Chinese population, in um, uh, Iranian population in a German population in a Polish population so we're looking at all these different cultural groups and what we're finding is there's a the the fundamental sort of factors we call it in in this type of measuring mm -hmm. um, is the same across all the cultures so there's these five key elements that we think are really important so one is this feeling of kind of being um, distressed or helpless or out of control when you hear the sounds one is feeling like there's something wrong with you when you're reacting this way one is feeling like there's something wrong with the other person for making you feel this way mm. one is feeling like you you might miss out on things or you do miss out on things because of 
the reactions and one is um, fearing that you'll have some kind of outburst or so occasionally actually having outbursts. So those five factors that came out of that big study have shown up in all those different cultures, which according to my statistician collaborator is really rare that you get such a robust consistency across cultures. So yeah. to start with that, that's just amazing to see that it has a really consistent pattern. That is amazing. Um, Not to get too nerdy, then, but especially with a new instrument. I mean, it's only a few years yes. old. You've already got that yeah. validation across so many yeah, different Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that is, that's the great thing about working with a statistician. She, her specialism, so that's Celia Vitaratu, my collaborator, she started that project and we found each other because we both have misophonia and she was working at it from a statistics perspective and I was looking at it from a clinical perspective. So we're able to bring those skills together. And I was able to say, like, what you've got already is is great in measurement terms but here are all the things that i'm seeing people are saying change for them over therapy and so we need to bring some of those things in so that we can use this to to tell whether therapy is helping this person or not and so it's not just about does this sound make you angry or not it's does it make you feel bad about yourself does it make you feel afraid of what's going to happen next that kind of thing but back to your original question, which was about okay. <laughs> cultures where slurping is considered a sign of appreciation. And it's very, very early data still for that. But what we're finding is that that, that sound is still a problem for people with misophonia in those cultures. So even though it has a cultural positive connotation yeah. to that sound, something about that sound is still causing a reaction to people with misophonia and I'd say it probably causes a more jarring reaction because it's so different from what other people in their culture would consider to be and I'm guessing in that context that missing out dimension is going to be amplified because now like yes yeah yeah. real disconnection absolutely yeah for sure this is fascinating um you can hang a little longer longer than 30 absolutely yeah (laughs) so literally I I (laughs) I love having the opportunity to just talk about this with no restrictions. All my friends and family are bored of hearing about it. So if you want to talk about it, I will talk about it. Well, let's talk about like, okay, so you started experimenting on yourself. And it's it's fascinating when you think about it. I understand that you don't hear the term a lot. So it's not something that's widely known, I think. But it's amazing that you had to actually think, well, let me just experiment on myself with these CBT techniques or exposure-based techniques or regulation techniques. Like no one had done that before, but what did you start to find out? What, so whether somebody is listening and they say, Hey, I probably have misophonia or they're just triggered by sound as part of their anxious state. What did you learn on yourself? And what are you working on that you would do with a client now based on this research? So uh, first I'm just going to close my curtain a little bit because the sun you see that it's changing. Is uncharacteristically <laughs> bright for Oxford, England. Yeah, sure. I'm just going to pull that over a little bit. Ah, that's um, better. Now I will not look quite so red faced for you. Um, so firstly, I'll say that it turns out that there were other people who were also working on this. It just hadn't been much published at the time. So mm-hmm. over the last few years and especially in the last two years there's been more misophonia research in the last two years than there ever was before in total and that's partly because there's this um fund called the misophonia research fund which is specifically to fund misophonia research so a lot of stuff we have learned in the last two years that just wasn't there before okay um but so yeah your question was about what i have learned so there's a lot of the stuff that I work on with patients is stuff that I would do with any person that I was working with, with CBT and just figure out how to adapt it for misophonia. So things like if you're feeling bad about yourself, 
because of your reactions, then there are certain techniques that we might do around sort of self-compassion or mm -hmm. um, sort of understanding, I'm particularly interested in sort of how childhood experiences shape what feels true in the moment, especially when there's that mismatch between what feels true and what you rationally know to be true. So if you feel like I'm a, a terrible person who could snap at any minute, but you know rationally I'm a pretty kind and gentle person and I've never attacked anyone, there's that mismatch. And so often that stems from some kind of experience, often in childhood. And so what we, one of the techniques that we do is what we call emotion bridging, where you bring a current example to the surface and, and bring back some of those emotions that you're feeling at the time. And then you use those emotions to bridge back into early memories where you first remembered feeling that way. And so you're actually traveling there through the emotions. And so it takes you to emotionally relevant memories and then we work through some of those memories and think about what was missing at the time that you needed that wasn't available for you which has made that memory stay kind of frozen in time and is influencing your reactions now and so if yeah. we can meet those needs first for that inner child of yours and then for you in the present then that can help to sort of remove one of those layers that sort of help calm calm the system a little bit and also just give you a little bit of validation. Well, no wonder you feel that way because that experience is still stored in there as if that is still yeah. happening for you today. So that might be an but, irrational belief, but he, he, here's why it doesn't seem so irrational in the moment. Yeah, so it's not irrational at all because right. it's it's shaped through your actual experiences and sometimes it's literally what happened in the moment and sometimes it's your perception of what happened in the moment because you didn't have any other information so if you had known at the time that this thing called misophonia existed then you would know oh I'm not crazy I'm not oversensitive I just happen to have a different way of processing sounds from other people mm -hmm. you wouldn't have interpreted it that way at the time and so again it's it's about sort of introducing the information that wasn't available at the time and updating that memory with what you now yeah. know. And it's it's the same process that we use for processing trauma in, in post-traumatic sure. stress disorder. Yeah. For things that seem small, the memory itself doesn't seem necessarily very dramatic, but for some reason it's stayed stuck, yeah. in frozen in time in your body and, and is influencing your current reactions. Yeah, makes perfect so sense. So that's one thing that, and that's, I, I really love doing that with people because it's really a validating experience. It helps them to understand that it's it's not this irrational, wild process. It's it's formed from your past yeah. experiences and, and that there were things that you needed that weren't available and we can now meet those needs and therefore we can start to heal that process a little bit. And I would think that in the moment, that triggered moment too, there's the trigger, there's the response, which is almost automatic. And then that dimension, I'm a horrible person for feeling this way, is now going to amplify the automatic. Now that's a problem on top of a problem. Yeah. And, and, and it escalates the fears. So people will see that I'm a terrible person right. and I will be judged for that. And therefore there might be consequences to that. So that's the other area that my research is in is, feared consequences. What are the things you are afraid will happen because of the way you react to sounds? Yeah. And that kind of groups together into like personal consequences, which 
look similar to some of um, the anxiety disorders that we know and love. So one is a fear of losing control, which is really similar to panic disorder. One is a fear that you will act on your thoughts, which is really similar to OCD. Yeah. One is a fear that, uh, that yeah, and then there's more the social ones, which again, uh, it sort of looks a little bit like social anxiety. So a fear that you will offend somebody or that you'll be judged mm -hmm. negatively or that there'll be really big consequences to people's perceptions of you. And sometimes those feared consequences are completely accurate that actually it, for that person in their life, people will judge them. People yeah. will be offended if they say something. And so it's not, it's not like those um, very traditional CBT where you kind of know where they're likely to be yeah. um, misinterpreting something and we can sort of update their understanding of the situation because with misophonia, sometimes it's true and so we need to check that and and work out whether is this um a circumstance that you need to figure out how to deal with so learn how to deal with the fact that people in your life are judging you yeah aren't very compassionate and setting boundaries and problem solving or is this a an old interpretation of a current problem and therefore we do some more classic cbt ideas of like well let's just find out what happens if you do share that information will mm -hmm. do they actually judge you and that's then more about experimenting and finding out yeah navigating through learning how to deal with it or navigate it as opposed to like trying to i'm saying invalidate or dispute the belief through those logical worksheets and the old school cbt stuff so yeah yeah and i'm not a huge fan of <laughs> worksheets and thought disputation anyway well it's because, 2023 it's not yeah I've, we've come a long way, thankfully, yeah. although some people are still a little bit stuck in, in worksheets, which yeah. I'm sure I know that worksheets can sometimes be helpful. I, I don't want to mean to diss the way other people practice. But one of the things that I think is really important is the influence of our experiences and anything that feels true in the moment that your body is telling you is true, even if it doesn't make rational sense, that comes from your experiences. And that can be early experiences or it could be recent experiences or it could be influenced by your behavior so yeah. if you glare at some your partner every time they eat loudly then that will feed into the belief that um you will offend them that you will be judged for acting this way that you're a bad person because you're acting as if you are an unkind yeah. Yeah. person or um that you can't tolerate other people's differences or something like that and so the the things that we do can also influence what feels true in yeah the so then that's another part of the therapy is like is there anything that you would like to experiment with changing to see whether that helps you to feel different or and most of the time that's not necessarily in the moment it might be the stuff that you do in between when there are no sounds or the way you process things afterwards and beat me to uh, it. reclaiming that time in between. Yeah. Cause I think it would be contextual. You know, if you are, you are in a triggered state, it's not your fault. You are literally experiencing distress and discomfort in that moment. The glare yeah. might be more understandable if you are able yeah. to connect it to that context. Exactly. And when yeah. you're in a state of distress, when your body is overwhelmed, you don't actually have access to any alternative strategies. You can't make a decision in that moment because you've already moved into that part of your brain that acts entirely on reflex. Yeah. So there's not much value in trying to change something in that moment. But what we can do is create smaller versions of that moment and experiment a little bit and practice different things and then see whether we can carry that into the, the real situation. 
boy, this is sounding all so very familiar. If you guys are listening, <laughs> yeah. you might not be dealing with misophonia, but see where this applies. <laughs> I, here's what I love when I asked, what did you learn? You didn't lead with like, oh, I have these techniques that I use when I'm triggered to calm myself down. You didn't lead with that. You led with the emotional response. I'm a bad person for feeling this way, which tells me a little something maybe. Is that more important? Yeah. The mechanical, like, yeah, my heart races. Yeah, well, I, for some people, my heart races will be the most important thing. And if, if that's the thing that somebody tells me, I'm what? really scared what's going to happen with my heart, then right. that's what we work on. But yeah. Um, yeah, for me, it was the emotional experience. So that's kind of where I started for me. And for other people, it might be the same. But what we'll try and do is just sort of map it out a little bit first and think, first of all, like, what's the most important thing to change? And secondly, what's most, what feels easiest? Or what do you feel like you can face first? And yeah. so it might be the most important thing, or it might be something that feels a bit easier to change, or it might be something that is a barrier to something else changing. Like I was talking before about shame. Like if you're yeah. experiencing shame in the moment, all the other changes are going to be near impossible because we just don't change or learn from within that state. Yeah. I mean, not that I want to co-opt your work and drag it into other areas, but you know, it's a thing you understand you're in this, you're in this business, if you will, but you know, people who, there are people who present in a panic disorder or agoraphobia as like, no, I'm primarily concerned with the physical symptoms. And there are other people who are primarily concerned with the social outcomes or the emotional outcomes. I feel shame or I'm going to make a scene or like I'm ruining everybody's day. So for yeah. people who often will come to people like Josh and I and ask questions, and if you go to disorder.fm, you can do that. But, uh, and they'll say, but, but what if, what if the fear is not a heart attack? What if the fear is that I'm causing a scene? Well, listen yeah. to what Dr. I'm Jane is saying. Of myself, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And working yeah. on that too is a valid way to approach this for sure. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and anything that gives you an opportunity to be curious about your reactions, curious about what's going on for you inside, mm -hmm. I think is a really healthy thing because you're not approaching it from a place of judging yourself or being judged by others. You're not approaching it from a place of fear. You're saying, I'd like to understand this a little bit better. So I want to just kind of slow down the process and figure out what's going on for me, where that might've come from, and then experiment a little bit with trying things differently. Yeah. Sounds good. I can ask you um, questions about this for a very long time. Where do you want to go from here? Uh, well, the, I think the, the, probably the next big thing in terms of what actually helps people is the, like the actual reaction to sounds. And this is the bit, which is a little bit different. I mean, you'll see some similarities with what, what works for the conditions but this is the the part where because of having misophonia your brain has developed an association between these sounds and some kind of danger whether that's like a threat or a violation or a fear of being overwhelmed mm -hmm. and so then the the part that we usually save till the end of treatment once we've removed the other layers is actually trying to create new associations with those sounds so that it doesn't feel anymore like this sound is a violation or overwhelming it still might be disgusting it still might be annoying or hard to concentrate but it doesn't have that association with it's a violation or it's um for some people it might be it feels like the other person doesn't care about me if they're making that sound even when they know rationally that they do oh. and so the way that we do that is and this is based on what we call inhibitory learning principles which is you, you basically try to um, get rid of the old associations by creating new associations in yeah. the brain. So you inhibit the old 
learning and create new learning. And so the our brain learns much faster if things are surprising, if we if we don't expect the outcome, if things are a bit funny, it can also help us to learn. We're in a much more receptive state, hence mm -hmm. partly doing the comedy stuff. Yeah. Um that yeah, so if things are novel and unexpected and sometimes funny, then our brain can learn a little bit faster. So we try and embed all of those principles into these strategies of playing around with sounds. Mm -hmm. And so for me, um, some of the things that I practiced for myself was um, I practiced listening to the sound of someone yawning really loudly. And then my um, kids got me a, a Chewbacca toy. <laughs> And so I would imagine that the yawn was coming from Chewbacca and he was really trying desperately to communicate something with me. And I just couldn't understand it because I don't speak Wookiee. Yeah. And the the sound of yawning stopped having that intense, like just that feeling of anger and irritation and feeling like this person's doing it theatrically, deliberately to get attention. And I started to mm. feel like, oh, that's just Chewbacca. He's trying to talk and no one understands him. And this poor guy in this meeting just, just wants to be understood. Mm. And by doing that outside of the moment, so practicing it on my own, listening to the sounds and pairing it with something new, then when I was in the moment, I was able to bring all of that learning with me and discover that actually now that I've practiced that, that sound doesn't have that same association with offense and violation that it had before. Yeah. Uh, so I can either respond the old way or I can respond the new way that I practiced. Yeah. And sometimes it feels like that's the choice, like you're there and I'm going to, I'm going to make a choice. And for a lot of people that we work with, they just say, actually, it just feels different now. I don't have that old reaction. So I'm not choosing between two paths right. anymore. Right. This is just the new path. And it's not that I like the sound now but i no longer have that old reaction it's not that and i want to panic but i just don't see it the way i used to yes and yeah so it's they've sort of some people have said it's just like a mindset yeah change yeah just that you had to work at that with a wookie doll like you couldn't just <laughs> decide to see it differently so. yeah you yeah. can't just decide to see things differently because it's not coming from a conscious decision-making place. It's coming from a felt experience place. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to create new experiences if you want to override those old ones. This is great. I am so appreciative of this. I, I think people are going to dig this. I, I, I'm pretty sure they're going to dig this because misophonia or beyond what you're talking about is going to resonate with a lot of people. So if somebody is dealing with this, what would you suggest they do? It's going to be hard to find a clinician that probably is experienced in this problem correct yes that is correct and i have we we have a clinic now in oxford so we take referrals from around the country so a, a small number of you in england will be able to access our service but actually one of the reasons i wrote the book is because i kept getting people contacting me saying i can't get access to a clinician i don't know what to do and i knew that for most people with misophonia it's not so extreme and severe that they need a therapist they just need the right information so step number one obviously buy my book because that's what it's there for. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I'm finding is people are writing to me saying that their clinicians are using the book with them. So they're working through it together. So they've got that added support from a clinician who can help them to understand things, to structure the plan, mm. to review the plan and to put things into place in between, but using some of these techniques. Yeah, it makes perfect the sense. And there are loads of techniques in the book, like 
that that example of the Wookiee and yawning, that's not even in there. Like there's <laughs> that didn't even, that it's not that it didn't make the cut. I came up with that one after I'd already sent it to my editor and she was like, please stop sending me new information. <laughs> That's great. Um, I mean, if we ever do publish the video, I, I put the book up on the screen over my shoulder here. It's called Sounds Like Macedonia. And actually, if you want to find that book, it's on Amazon, right? I noticed like, that's where I grabbed the cover, to be honest with you. So uh, <laughs> it's on Amazon and you can you have a website. It's soundslikemisophonia.com, correct? That's right. Yes. And my original plan for that website was to be writing about research that's happening in a way that it is easier to understand than most research papers. I wrote the book instead, so the website just kind of stalled for a little while, but I'm back updating the website. So I will now also be talking about misophonia research as we learn more, because the book is like this timestamp of what I understood at the time I submitted yeah. it, which was actually nearly a year ago. And since then, there's been a whole lot more research. And fortunately, a lot of it fits with what I'd already written. So yeah. <laughs> thankfully, there's nothing I have to like retract, but there's new stuff coming out every not every day, but every month there's new papers coming out. So the website will sort of provide up-to-date information about the research. Very good. And um, I also like to encourage people to buy the book from local bookshops if they can, because I love bookshops and I want them to survive. So if you are I'm, able to go and visit that. your local bookshop, please do. Yes. Yes. That's very good. I pre I really appreciate that because I would, I am a fan of that. So that's really great. If you are, the, the book is called Sounds Like Misophonia and you can go to soundslikemisophonia.com, but if you go to disordered.fm slash 3333, I will make sure that the links and everything to all Dr. Jane's stuff is there, including the book. So make it easy to find. This is the part where like we would be doing did it anyways and, and you know, answering questions, but we've already done 45 minutes. So I think this was great. Well, we'll be back next well. week did it anyways and, and the usual, but um, thanks for coming by. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I'm yeah. so glad we finally managed to do it. And actually, I'm in a much stronger position to be talking to you now than I was two years ago when we first talked about this, because I have learned so much in the last two years. Yeah. So I think we actually timed it perfectly. Good things come to those that way. And, I and I've now had media training, so I can actually talk a little bit more coherently than I would have done two years ago. You, you did really well. It's, I feel like you must do this every day, or maybe you don't. I don't know. But either way, you're really good at this. So appreciate it. Well, um, oh, before we go also, people on uh, social media links, I, I know you on Instagram. So Yes, I'm on Instagram, and I'm trying to get better at it, learning from the masters such as yourself. I'm at Sounds Like Miso for misophonia research and sort of updates in the misophonia world and at Dr. Jane Gregory for me as a person and my sort of journey through as being a researcher and being an author and all that sort of stuff. So I'm in, on Instagram and Twitter on both of those handles. I will put all the links there. Disorder.fm slash 33 will get you to this show. We're going to, that's something new that we've never done, but I'll do it for this one. And um, what else? If you have questions or comments, if you want to ask a question, I can relay it to Dr. Jane for sure. So just go to disorder.fm and use the email function or leave us a voicemail. Josh and I listen to all of them. We can't answer all of them, but we do. Send us a did it anyway. And uh, of course, as we always say, if you're listening to the podcast on you know some platform that lets you give a thumbs up or a five-star rating or leave a review, please do that for us because it really helps us out, especially in the UK. I will pitch for the UK today, because even though because you guys are smaller than us. So we need UK reviews, so go get them. Anyway, thanks, Dr. Jane. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll see you next week.